שיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Problems. 
it's not always the case that the Torah prescribes a law or legislates a law and says, this is the best way to live. Sometimes the Torah prescribes, you know, confronts laws and says, we've got a real problem here. The way people are behaving can be quite complicated. Let's reform the natural instincts in human beings. So, so for example, the very first mitzvah in the Torah, uh, in, the, in the Parsha, comes in, is, about, uh, is about female captives on, in battlefield, and what well, you might have to call battlefield rape. And the Rashi says that the Torah speaks, according to Gemara's, Torah speaks keneged yetzer hara, that the uh, Torah is speaking to the basest human instinct and trying to restrict it such that it does not you know, trans, tr transcend all boundaries. The Torah speaks about the execution of the rebellious son. I don't think that the Torah is saying, if your children misbehave, you should kill them. I think the Torah is saying, sometimes there are children who are out of control. Slow down. Don't kill them. Take them to the elders, and let's have a process here in which people's basest instincts, their, their out-of-control rages, can be controlled. So, so what you've done here is you've basically given us a method for the study of these mitzvot. And you've basically said, look, the mitzvah says this, but when you go into depth on the context of the mitzvah, if you go into the depth about what this mitzvah is trying to uh, answer, what kind of situation is this mitzvah relating to, whether it be how, the, how people's moral lives decline in situations of war. Um, the Torah has a lot to say here. The Torah is, is truly, really trying to speak to its own context, but, but we, of course, being part of the conversation through generations, have extended the context to, to us. And, and yes, of course, nobody wants to, to, to take their child and be executed, but uh, I guess every one of us has had a child say um, no to us when asked to do something like clean your room or... <laughs> I don't think that rises to the level of Ben Sorero Moret. However, uh, you know, I'm, if you inject truth, truth serum into some parents, they would say, yes, there were times when I wanted to. I, I, we've, we've worked in communal lives. I, I'm, you know, I have members in my congregation who, you know, um, your heart goes out to them. They've had kids who are out of control. Yeah. They have had kids with, with really serious problems, you know, and so to extrapolate from Ben Sorero Mora in the Torah, the rebellious child in the Torah to our own child, you've got a child who's, who's got a drug problem or who's stealing. Um, you know what? Calm down. And we're going to try to unpack this in a way that helps you deal with it as opposed to just lets you uh, overwhelm. You know, the, 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 um, Psalms has the line, Psalm 119 has the line, Zemirot hayuli megurai, your laws were like poems to me or songs to me uh, in all of my travels. I think that there's a poem or a story behind each law, and you should read the Torah, especially in all parshiot, but especially in this very mitzvah-dense parsha, as, as you said, Elliot, with an eye towards and an ear towards the poetry why is it telling me this, and what is it trying to do in shaping my shaping my response? And I think in almost all cases, we'll find that these laws in this parsha are not, you know, just meaningless, mindless, do it because I said so, but are are opening up something really to think about. What I would add is that there are, a lot of the laws are rooted in the shrewd observation about human nature. 
all of us have been in situations where we've been carried away by our passions, where our immediate response to a situation is not our reflective response to a situation. And passion does not lead to justice. Justice requires reflection. So as you said, Jeremy, we have to slow things down and get to that moment of reflection so that we could achieve justice. We could only imagine the horror of this Ben Moret in real life, but it seems clear that the Torah's little passage here makes sure that whatever becomes of this child, it's rooted in a judicial procedure. It's not the child, the parents taking the matters into their own hands and getting rid of their problem immediately. It's a slow process. We could pick up on that, and I think both of you, you know, have, have highlighted this, that the idea that you take the child to Zikne Iro, to the elders, to me, that's the story here. I mean, if, you know, if we were interpreting this, we're saying that there's been a breakdown. The parents can't handle it on their own. The parents are, are, are going crazy. Here they have this, this child that, that is out of control. They need help. They need support. Who do you go to in, in biblical society? Who are you going to go to when, when you have nowhere else to go? And, and when you need to mitigate a situation, and when your own family structure is not intact, it doesn't say go to your grandparents, go to your great-grandparents, or go to your uncle. It says go to Zikneiro. There, there's an assumption here that these people are wise, they have, they're, they're compassionate, they're patient, and they're gonna help mitigate a situation. And that's a story that, that, that is, I, I, I think this is, you know, we, we all subscribe to the idea that this instant, the rebellious child is a, is a, a theoretical case. It, it probably has to do with the violation of the fifth commandment. Um, but even in, in theoretical cases, and uh, it's about the understanding of these, these situations that, that delights us and that, and that shapes the way we understand it. And, and of course, um, there is a reward for study with the, 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 phrase, the phrase for studying these passages. Drosh v'kabel sachar. Expound it. Expound even all this difficult stuff, even the stuff that is theoretical. And there is reward to be had in engaging with the Torah on these points. And I, I think that's absolutely true. So I would add a, a nice wordplay prompted by your comment, Elliot, that a lot of these laws want to turn passion into compassion. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. You know, we would be remiss if we did not discuss um, a couple of things in this parsha. Um, I'm looking for the passage on Hashemat Aveda, um, the the mitzvah Hashemat Aveda, which is chapter 22. Don't don't uh, look away if you see your fellow's ox or his sheep wandering. And, and that word means you know you just don't care. Right? Uh, Barry, Jeremy, how many, how many summers have we you know, worked on this curriculum? I have so many recollections of... Well, we've lost track, which fits in with the theme. <laughs> so many beautiful recollections of doing the lost and found game and studying these, you know, Mishnayot and, and pieces of, of text and Talmud uh, based on, you know, simanim and what, what do you announce, what do you not announce, and all that. Um, and again, this, you know, we, we, what we try to do in that circumstance is create um, events, create opportunities for the, the, the children 
to relate to these mitzvot in ways that were very real to them. After all, uh, what could be more real at camp than losing something? Uh, or having someone take something, or having someone find something and saying, it's mine. No, it's not. It's mine. Right? <laughs> Recollections of these things. For, for any, any of you parents who send your kids to Camp Ramon and are mystified when they don't come back with any of their clothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We're going to lift the curtain a little bit and let you know that it's just a complete bardock. It's an utter mess. <laughs> we learned what, you know, disposable underwear is. Disposable <laughs> Going to Target before camp and then knowing that nothing will come back and it just, you know, you, you might as well forget about it. You know, that's exactly what it is. Oh, socks. Yeah. What what has happened to socks? The, the, the you, you're pointing out, Elliot. First of all, this this is a great curriculum for for the kids in in you know fourth and fifth and sixth grades, um, because everybody gets what it means exactly. that we res, that we want to respect your property, and it hurts if somebody takes your property. Uh, you, you know, hey, you should care as much about other people's property as you care about your own. There's a great, a great line from Rabbi Yisrael Salanto who said, you know, the world, everybody cares about their own souls and their neighbor's property. The truly righteous person cares about their, 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 everybody cares about their neighbor's souls and their own property. The truly righteous person cares about their own soul and their neighbor's property. And, and so, can, so if I may, just, just to add to this, which is in, in the slight, you know, more, more, sharper way which is what we're seeing now where where people you know where there are, there's lots of looting going on or has been going on and breaking of property and and damage is that the 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 safeguards of these uh, these principles are, are 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 not not there uh and and that when our society itself ceases to recognize these boundaries and this kind of basic element of respect i mean here the torah has something to teach us even in the matter of lost objects it doesn't i mean obviously there are laws for looting and stealing etc and damaging but uh, it's all in the same continuum you you are responsible for maintaining somebody else's somebody else's uh, monetary well-being and material well-being and you are you know nobody is more vulnerable than lost objects you know we we uh well some could be more vulnerable than that, certainly, but it is a particular kind of vulnerability when when people exploit your property. Um, and so the Torah is, is attempting to make everybody feel lo tuchalehitalem. You can't ignore this. By the way, I saw an amazing video in the course. There, there was a in, in one of the unrest moments. This this happened to be in in uh, Santa Monica, California. So an amazing video in the course of these last months that there was a like a really wild looting situation. And this young woman, um, she was just like dressed in very light clothing, you know, just shorts and a t-shirt and whatever. And these guys dressed in masks and big, they were taking shovels or sledgehammers and breaking into a store. She stood in front of them um, to stop them from breaking into a store. Ultimately she was overcome and, you know, physically carried away. But it was an amazing video of real human bravery to try to protect uh, people's property from, you know, this is a person who was protesting along with, you know, protesting uh, racial injustice along with the other folks, but to stand in front of the store, there was a, you know, a sporting goods store or something like that to, to protect the property. I thought it was amazingly brave. So that's the, in, in a sense, 
the, the Torah wants to cultivate that ethical sensibility in us. And that, that was obviously the purpose in, in our teaching uh, children these laws. The laws themselves, they make for good stories. And of course, we all live, you know, personal vignettes through, through lost objects. But to cultivate the idea that when you see something, say something, when you see something that's lost, you assume certain things and that there's a whole way of doing a triage on an object that actually brings you closer to your fellow human beings in your community. I, uh, let, let's turn to, to another often quoted mitzvah in this parsha, uh, If you see a, a bird's nest before you, either in a tree or in, on the ground, and you see the chicks or the eggs, and the mother uh, is hovering over the chicks, or on the eggs. Do not take the mother with the children. You have to send her out, send her forth. So they'll be good for you and you'll have length of days. So this is an interesting mitzvah. Uh, and let, let me ask you to offer any reflections on, on this mitzvah in terms of, A, what it's talking about, and, and in terms of the idea, what is it trying to cultivate in a human being? You know? and, and, and anything else that you, you, you want to you know, re- relate to on this mitzvah, Barry, you want to? So the mitzvah is often paired with the fifth commandment, you shall honor your parents because that too comes with the promise of the land and is associated with the story of the, the I guess, infamous sage Elisha Ben Abuya, um, known in uh, rabbinic literature as Acher the Other because he left the Jewish community. So he is said to have observed a uh, a boy being told by his father to climb a tree to chase away the mother so that they could take the eggs or the fledglings, and the boy falls to his death. And in the case of Alicia, he shouts, let in the let dayan, there's neither justice nor a judge, because the two commandments that the boy was observing both promised long life, and he came to a short life. And I think that the story itself is interesting on a number of different levels, but to tie it back in with the, what seems to be the plain meaning of the, the, the law itself is that we, we know that as human beings, since the time of Noah, we're permitted to eat meat, but there are limits to what we can do. And again, we all have lusts and passions, and sometimes we're carried away. And there's something it seems to be unseemly about taking a mother and its young at the same time. A lot of the medieval commentators pair this with other laws in Vayikra. You're not allowed to slaughter an ox or a cow and its offspring on the same day. And um, there's a humanitarian impulse behind a lot of these laws, according to, again, many of our sages, because what makes us human is not just how we treat other human beings, but how we treat animals as well. It's fascinating, you know, the, the experience with animals is, is somewhat less and less in, in our society, even though many people obviously own pets and the like. Uh, but if you, if you go just a little bit of nature, if you go for walks or, or you uh, uh, experience nature uh, 
in any kind of way. You, you'll come across uh, many wildlife. And on one of my walks, uh, we have a lot of Canadian geese in, in our area. And uh, at, in one particular season, I believe it's in the spring, all the, the eggs begin to hatch. And when you're walking and you see a whole train of these uh, chicks, uh, the mother is fierce, fierce, fiercely protective of the little Efrochim, the little chicks. Uh, you, do, you do not want to mess with that mother. And the same is we have a lot of deer in, in Highland Park. And uh, uh, my, my backyard is a good backyard for deer. They, they love hanging out in my backyard. And occasionally I'll see, I'll see a, a mother with a little foal and little uh, deer. And, and uh, if you go near, you, you're, you're gonna, you'll hear about it. It's the instinct that you're reacting to. And the Torah is, is sensitive to this, is understand it, and wants to cultivate a human being to be a compassionate human being. How about uh, the maka, the, 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 rail, the railing around your roof? Anything you want to say about that? That, that you should always take precautions to do the common sense things, right? Make sure your poisonous soaps and powders are far away from people. Do, do common sense protective things. Any mitzvot that you want to the, bring to the Parsha cast? Well, so, you, you know, we've been talking about for, for the, 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 um, the bird's nest. I, I also feel, as, as, as Barry said, that uh, I'm, I resonate with those commentators, like most especially the Ramban, who, who says this is about teaching ourselves kindness and not cruelty. Um, the, uh, the cruel thing, you know, Ramban says, listen, you know, for, for the reasons that Elliot said, Parent animals feel about their children the way human uh, animals feel about their children, and it would be cruel to subject the mother to uh, to to feeling to, to having that that pain. Uh, although one might, of course, say that the least cruel thing of all would be to be a vegetarian, but that's another matter altogether. Um, the the there's another mitzvah in the Torah, and is a sort of a paired human and animal mitzvah. The the mitzvah of Lotachson Shorbadisho. You cannot muzzle an ox while it is threshing. That is to say, what, what they used to do, what you know, pre-modern agricultural society would do, is to thresh, to, to separate the, the wheat from the hay and the straw, is that they would just have oxen uh, like march on the, the plants and it would knock off the, the bad parts and it would, knock off, it would separate the bad parts from the good parts and they could gather up all of the stuff that they were gonna make into flour but it was seen to be cruel to muzzle the ox while it was doing this work because that is ox yummies, okay? <laughs> the, the ox yummies are the straw. And so to make the ox work for you while, while you not, don't let the ox eat is just, is just cruel. And the uh, a parallel human mitzvah in the same parsha is that when people are working in fields, when laborers are working in fields, actually the, rab, the rabbis understand it the mitzvah is referring to laborers, although the simple words of the Torah just refer to somebody entering another person's field, perhaps walking through it, or uh, maybe walking through it on the way to their own field, or walking through it on the way to town, that it's just cruel um, uh, in, in the laborer case, or even, even just the regular person case, 
to not let them pick some of the fruit off the trees. If, if my job was to harvest grapes, uh, you can't say, but don't eat even one single grape. What the, what the worker cannot do, like the ox that is threshing, the worker can take a bite. They can take an apple. They can have, what they can't do is bring a basket and, and they can't take, their, take the apples or the grapes home with them. But while working, you can eat because the, the experience of being amidst all that food, amidst all that abundance, is, is like a, bless, a blessed experience. So don't destroy it for a person or for an animal by not letting them eat. Right. It seems excessive to make these rules, these, the, the uh, over, over what is a, human, a natural human tendency. Let's, uh, there's a, there's a, a bunch of laws here. There's a group of laws that relate to the neighbors, the neighboring countries. Right? You should not permit an Ammonite or a Moabite in your uh, community, in your people, even to the 10th generation. We'll talk about it in a second. And then it says, Do not despise, do not uh, disparage the Edomite. Do not do the same to the Egyptian. I want you to reflect on on. This, we recall, of course, that Moab, Ammon, and Edom are neighboring peoples uh, and their relatives, uh, their distant cousins. Um, the, Mitzrayim, the Mitzrayim, we had uh, some experience there. Um, what is the Torah trying to tell us there? Uh, and, well, the, the, the people who can't come in, the, the, our Parsha says, um, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, the, the mamzer, loyavo mamzer, kala dunai, bikala dunai, the mamzer, which the word mamzer, uh, of course, comes to mean in halacha, um, uh, you know, somebody of, of born of a forbidden relationship, an incestual or an adulterous relationship, but it's not clear what the word itself means. It may mean me'amzar from a foreign people, uh, the, the, just etymologically, and appears to be an anti-intermarriage mitzvah or something like that. Um, the Moavi and the the uh, uh, the Amoni Moavi are—they're just like enemy peoples. And this this is a great piece of rabbinics. We we also know the most famous Moabite of all is Ruth. Ruth. Ruth, let's hear it for Ruth. She's the grandmother or great-grandmother of King David. Right, but the rabbis say the law is about the Moabite man. This is it. The, the, she comes. She's she is portrayed as coming into the Beit Midrash. With the brilliance of Moavivalo Moavia. It applies to the male, but not the female. And the rabbis, in this, in this little bit of rabbinic wordplay, say, oh, brilliant. Yes, okay. So, so Ruth can come. Um, but the, as, as, uh, as Ellie was saying, I do think the most interesting one is the Egyptian. They were terrible. They threw you in the river. They were just the worst. They were stricken with plagues for how bad they were. But you are not allowed to hate them because. In addition to the period of oppression, they welcomed you in in the midst of a famine. And you're supposed to, I think you're supposed to uh, maintain some gratitude for stage one of life in Egypt and not let stage two of life in Egypt blot out that, that bit of gratitude. So would you, would you, how would you categorize this in, in, in the context of people from, let's say, countries where Jews were horribly disparaged? You have the whole Jews of Arab lands experience, uh, and of course, Jews in Germany and, and Eastern Europe. Um, you know, we lived there for a thousand years. Uh, uh, we thrived. Uh, and, and there is a very 
ambiguous, difficult relationship that we have with all of these countries. You know, with, with, with Germany, I mean, it's really, really hard because obviously there's never been anything like the Shoahs, you know, as much as we've experienced hard times over the centuries. Um, there's never been anything like the Shoah. And I, when I hear German language, I have a negative reaction. Uh, and the state of Israel never would have survived if it weren't for German war operations. Yeah. And one of the largest Israeli diaspora communities is in Germany, and a, and a, and a, and a significant Jewish community exists now in, in Germany with uh, Russian, ex-Russians, etc. So, so there is this relationship here with with these kinds of places. Indeed, I would say you know I I, I did one visit to or two visits to uh, to Poland. That's where uh, some of my ancestors come from, and I I can understand that. The, the reason why they, they, they reflected so romantically about their childhoods and how much they loved the landscape was because like, their lives as they perceived it in their nostalgia was, you know, they were very, very simple. And there was something that they, they all learned from there. And Jewish life and Jewish civilization thrived in these places. And we still have, um, I think, a very complicated relationship with places like that. Gary, any mitzvot you want to put on the table for us as we wind down here? Um, well, there's Love Right Marriage, one of, oh. one of my favorites, where the, the husband of a childless couple dies and the widow is obligated to marry the brother-in-law. Yeah. Um, and the way that the Torah casts it is that this is in order to preserve the deceased brother's name that the child that will come forth from their union will be reckoned as the dead brother's son, and therefore the name will be continued. And what strikes me about the law is that it seems related in some way to the stories of Benos Slovchad, because I think an undercurrent, it has to do with inheritance law and what happens to the property, the land, and keeping it in the family. Um, if the woman marries the brother-in-law, then any land that she might have inherited from her dead husband is going to remain within the family. And that's, I think, an important consideration. It's hard to uh, make sense of the law today, although I remember my mother telling me, my grandfather, Alava Shalom, his, the, his brother, the one whom I'm named for, died childless. And my, father, my grandfather in his 80s had to do chalitzah, which was the rabbinic re the release ceremony. And my grandfather was a rabbi, and he found it thoroughly distasteful, as my mother told the story. So it's a, a curious kind of, kind of a law, and um, I don't know if we study what kind of reward we get from it, but I do like to think of it from time to time. You know, I, I, feel, I feel it's like two elements. I mean, it's, it's, I think there's poetry in every one of these things. And the, the feeling that the Torah seems to express that uh, I, I do not think that the one and only way to, to live life is through your children. I think that that's a bit of, of uh, certainly an exaggeration. I know lots of wonderful people who don't have children and it's not, uh, it's not you know, divine punishment or anything. And they, they live rich lives. But the Torah does seem to think that there's just something wrong um, if a person can't contribute to have another generation. And so the, that poor dead childless person 
he is he is protected by the the, the brother-in-law sister-in-law marriage because as you said that the child will will go on Carrie's name the family property is protected but the the other part of it that I think bears mentioning is that a childless widow oh man she's in trouble yeah. she's got no prospects for uh, for her own sustenance. She doesn't have children who will provide for her. And she doesn't have a husband who will provide for her. And she's probably not an attractive uh, marriage prospect herself. So by demanding that the brother-in-law take her in as wife uh, is also in a huge way supporting the woman. Now, of course, we think, or I think, some monumentally creepy to, <laughs> to enter into a sexual relationship with your former brother-in-law. But I think that the Torah is considering this um, as a great act of chesed towards this otherwise uh, indigent or could be indigent woman. Well, the, the Parsha ends also with uh, uh, the passage about Amalek, remembrance. It's, it's a passage that we read, of course, on a special Shabbat before Purim, and that does kind of put a, put a, a very somber note to end with. Uh, and um, the the idea of memory, the idea that, that we have to live with the memory of uh, past experiences, I think that's uh, very important. And maybe just a, a note of comfort about, about uh, that comes from the Haftarah. The Haftarah this week, which is, I guess, the fifth of the Haftarah of comfort. The of Ketzef, Yistarti Panecha. I hid my face from you, and Bechesed Olamim, I'll take you back with love. Um, the idea that God... God sometimes hides from us, and that, uh, but that, that hiddenness is an instant. Um, I think that's a very profound idea that animates a lot of uh, Jewish thinking, that uh, we have the capacity to find God's presence uh, revealed to us in different ways. And certainly, I would say, it's revealed to us in the study of Torah, which we enjoy and delight in. We hope that we can share this delight with our many, many viewers and listeners. It's always a pleasure. It's great to come to the conclusion here and to wish everyone a Shabbat Shalom. Brother Barry Chapter, Brother Jeremy Kalinowski, and we'll see you on a next edition of Shabbat Shalom.